Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to another episode of Yes Yukon. And uh, today we have uh, Ken Davis back on the show. And unfortunately, you know, I asked Ken to come back on on such short notice because uh, we had another loss in the Husky family over the weekend. Uh, Clifford Robinson passed away at age 53. Uh, according to The Athletic, uh, the cause of death was lymphoma. And this is tough. You know, Cliff Robinson was a, you know, was a legendary UConn basketball player and really the first great UConn basketball player of the Jim Calhoun, uh, the Jim Calhoun era. Um, he, of course, predated Jim Calhoun. But, you know, upon his arrival, he was kind of the cornerstone that really set the tone. You know, he was a big part of the uh, 1988 NIT championship. And then he went on to enjoy an 18 year career in the NBA and you know, you can even just see watching those games over the weekend. You know, he was one of the guys that they gave a, a big moment of silence to prior to those playoff games. So, you know, a huge, huge loss. Ken, you know, you got a chance to cover him. You, you know, probably watched more of his games than just about anybody. What, 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 is, what did Cliff Robinson mean to UConn? And, you know, what is what is his passing? You know, what kind of impact does this have? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing. It's very sad at this age and I knew he'd had some problems health-wise I didn't realize he had the lymphoma um I don't know how long that went along but uh, it's just uh you know brings you back to those days when everything was starting I mean Cliff and Phil uh, Gamble came in as freshmen in my first year in Hartford at the current uh, working the Yukon beat and uh, so we arrived together and uh, I was uh, I was still pretty young then too and uh, a little older than Phil and Cliff but not not that much and um, you know it uh, everything happened there it was uh, they they were freshmen during uh, Don Perno's last season at Yukon and that was a tough year with so many distractions off the court with Earl Kelly getting in trouble that summer and then having a, a hearing on campus on that started on December 23rd and went into the wee hours of Christmas Eve and then Earl lost his eligibility when the second semester started and it was just um, a, a really difficult year to get through and then of course uh, Dom left uh, and Jim Calhoun took over in, in May of 86. And, uh, you know, and everything changed. But um, as I wrote in my blog on Saturday, I mean, it, things that people don't talk about too much anymore is the uh, impact that Cliff and Phil had academic, academically at UConn because uh, when, when UConn came into the... When the Big East started in 79, obviously UConn was not ready for that move into the big-time world college basketball. And one of the main problems was uh, academic support system for athletes, and UConn just had no clue what they were doing at that point. So in conjunction with everything that happened with the coaching change was the task force report on academics that John Toner, the athletic director, had uh commenced and then it continued on and uh so you know jim calhoun was handed that uh report when when he took the job and i i don't know if he kept that report in his the desk in his office uh to the last day at uconn but i know for many many years that 
task force report was was in his filing cabinet and uh the big basis of everything that happened with cliff and phil in their sophomore year being declared academically ineligible and um and all the things that i mean that wasn't unexpected they everybody knew they were in trouble and they had not gotten the kind of counseling and support they needed and and so you know that was that was a huge moment that people today don't even think about many people who you know started the following program during all the big east championships uh forget the sacrifice and the hard times that phil and cliff went through um not really by any fault of their own they just weren't prepared coming out of high school for college and and uconn didn't have the support system there in place so they, they lost their eligibility and Jim's first team went 9-19 and 19 with um, Greg Economou coming over from the baseball team, and I think it was Brian Hall from soccer. A hodgepodge team put together a 9-19 uh, and 19 season that was pretty miserable, and then, then you had consecutive winning seasons with the uh, NIT championship, and, uh, and then going back the next year when everyone kind of thought maybe the, as seniors that Cliff and Phil would lead them to the NCAA tournament. But Cliff, um, obviously, his, his NBA career, 18 years, it speaks for itself. And the, the progress that he made overcoming overcoming things from a personal standpoint, and we can talk about that more as we go along, but, um, you know, academically and also as a player, um, being snubbed in the first round when everyone thought he would go in the first round of the NBA draft. And I focused heavily on that in my blog. And uh, that that's just one of the, you know, it was sad. And it was also, as I said, it was very inspirational that Cliff handled it the way that he did. And Cliff always kind of had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, that put a bigger one on his shoulder when, when he slipped down to 36th overall with the Trailblazers. And, he just wanted to, you know, he told us that night, uh, the, the reporters that went down from Connecticut to uh, the Felt Forum in Madison Square Garden that he was going to prove people wrong, and he did. <laughs> now, um, uh, for much of his career, he was considered one of the best six men and obviously played in a couple NBA finals and a great defensive player and, uh, well, finished, you know, among the top 60 people in, in scoring all time and, you know, just amazing, and uh, I, f- I feel for his family. I feel for Jim Calhoun. I feel for most, most especially for Phil Gamble, who I've traded some messages with over the weekend, and uh, Phil's devastated by this, and they were interchangeable parts, kind of. They, they were often confused for each other, although one was a, a center, and, a, a four, and uh, Phil was a guard, and... Uh, it was always kind of weird that people mistook them, but uh, yeah, it uh, it was the beginning uh, of a long special run, and and uh, it was always good to see Cliff when he came back. And uh, uh, this is painful. We'll certainly miss Cliff. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so you know, I want to talk about the uh, the NBA draft, uh, you know, in more detail for sure. But kind of before we get to that, you know, uh, Cliff Robinson, of course, played in the late '80s. You know, many of UConn's fans today, uh, you know, myself included, weren't around to see him play. And um, 
yeah, you know, just real quick, could you just tell us a little bit about just the kind of player Cliff was and sort of kind of what made him so good? Well, he, you know, as a big man, he, uh, he, I mean, it wasn't even a term at that time. He, you know, the stretch four really has come about in, in basketball has been so prominent. And that's really what he was in the NBA. He was playing center, forward, whatever you want to call it. I mean, he was just a big man down low, uh, great rebounder. He could block shots. He played hard defense. I mean, you can say whatever you wanted to about Cliff. He came in here and wasn't wasn't a real um, charming guy. <laughs> um, came out of Buffalo, Howie Dickman recruited him, and basically he came down to Yukon and Oklahoma, and uh, Cliff decided to come. Uh, Howie Dickman had coached at Canisius. He had some Buffalo ties, and he dug, dug Cliff out um, for Don Perno. And, um, you know, he was just he was just your quintessential power guy, you know, uh, able to score, able to dunk, able to, to step out, hit a jump shot, um, rebound, and do a little bit of everything. He, you know, the, the rap against him going into the draft was that he had been inconsistent, and he, and he had, you know, he had good games. He had, had games that you said, where, you know, where was this guy? Um, and even in the um, even in the NIT championship game in 1988, you know he got in foul trouble, and it was really more of Phil. Phil Gamble was the MVP, and Jeff King had a good game, and you know uh, Cliff uh, even said to to Phil, you know he goes, you know he went out with foul trouble. And he said, you know this is your time, Phil, and Phil played a great game, but he had had I think. 29 points against um, Boston College in the, in the uh, semifinals of the NIT. So it wasn't like they got there without him. He, he, he was a really good player. He was a focal point going into the, uh, going into the senior season. The, the headline on our story in the current was in the college basketball preview was tall order. And, and he, I mean, just to show you his mentality, we had a, right underneath the headline, we had a little drop quote, and he said, uh, everybody, everybody talks about Michael Jordan, and he goes, I say, so what? You know, I, I, I can be as good as he is. Oh, my God. He wasn't, <laughs> he, he wasn't Michael Jordan ever, but, uh, you know, he, he lasted 18 years, and, and, and that's just amazing. And he, and he was, you know, he was sturdy. He was durable. He he. Uh, still holds the record for most consecutive games by a Portland player. He just he, he was out there all the time, and he and, and the, the one thing you could always say was he was working always working hard. He had a good work ethic. He was focused in on him and and basketball, and he admitted that in his senior year that those were the only things important to him, and he really didn't care what other people thought about him, and he didn't really care to to talk to people about what they thought about him. And then it was hard for both Phil and Cliff to go through that academically. And people kind of gave up on him. Uh, as I remember that most people around Connecticut said, well, they won't get back, but they did. They dug in and got their academic work and they came back and they had the help to, to get them through. And, um, you know, it's the, it's a kind of story that you really, wouldn't see these days anymore because the guys aren't allowed to slip through the cracks 
the way those two were in their fresh in well freshman and sophomore years that um, you know whatever is done whatever can be done in most cases to keep guys eligible it's done so yeah um, it was a different time different place no definitely now now that you you mentioned that Michael Jordan thing now I feel like we were cheated out of a great segment on the last dance where you know Michael you know going into the 1992 NBA finals is just like yeah then someone reminded me of that time Cliff Robinson was just like yeah I could I could beat that guy and it took and I took it personally <laughs> cue montage of him just dunking all over everybody on Portland um no, anyway, yeah, but yeah. So Cliff was obviously a terrific player. Uh, he was a two-time All All Big East selection, uh, averaged fifteen point six points per game in his career. Um, you know, the other day, you know, Jim Calhoun told the uh, Associated Press he was our first great player. He gave legitimate he gave legitimacy to this program as a player coming in. Here's this guy playing on TV for the Trailblazers, watching him play, watching UConn being mentioned. You could not pay for the exposure that he gave us. And you know, a back, you know, it's people, you know, around here don't appreciate it now necessarily, but you know, UConn really was just they, they were not on the national radar until really like I guess I guess like the 1990 season kind of was what did it, but in the 80s this was all so unexpected. So for him to kind of do what he did was great. Um, you mentioned obviously the NBA draft was a disappointment for him. He was thought he'd be drafted in the first round. He winds up slipping into the you know the to the Trailblazers around I think you said pick number 36. And um, you, you wrote in your blog post basically you and the other writers basically had to chase him down. Um, what was that experience like having to you know basically go you know talk to uh you know cliff on the you know probably the most disappointing night of his life and just you know what he was able to i don't know, guess the the words he was able to sum up in that moment it was very hard um you know you, you as a reporter you're not you know you're supposed to be distanced from the people that you cover but you know i covered him for years and and think you know everything was happening for yukon and it's like jump said i mean you, you watched Portland play with the pride that, that Cliff was out there. It had been a, a while since you kind of had a player that, you know, went into the NBA and had a big impact. And I mean, Earl Kelly was, was drafted that first year that I was here, but that was a, a different time in the NBA as well, because I think Earl was taken in the sixth or seventh round, something like that. And the, 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 uh, draft that Cliff was in was either the first or second year, I think it might have been the first year, that there were only two rounds. So there was so much focus on being a first round pick and having guaranteed contract and all that. And, and Cliff had said before the draft that it, you know, that was going to be his dream come true, that they were going to call his name. Um, <laughs> he was going to go up on the stage with the commissioner they were going to be showing highlights of his career, and he said, that's what I've always dreamed of. So you sat there, and it was like two hours and 15 minutes for them to get through the first round, and pick after pick going by, and he was had been, you know, the, the typical way that um, the NBA handles that they invite a certain number of people that are, you know, expected to be in the first round, and they bring them in, and they... And we, you know, we've seen that before. almost every year. We see a guy who who drops down, doesn't go where he's expected to go. That you, you, you I, I can't remember which teams really had expressed an interest in Cliff, but you know, you you got down into the teens and the twenties, and you're going, you know, what's what's happening here? And and he was 
the last guy. Uh, you, you, I don't care if it's, uh, you know, for a UConn fan, if it had been a Georgetown player or a Syracuse player that you hated in, in the rivalry, you still hate to see a kid go through that. And uh, they're still, they're young men and they're sitting there waiting for their name to be called or waiting for their dream. And, and it's a hard thing to watch. So obviously he was... In the, they didn't have like a green room like they have these days. It was in the felt forum, in the smaller room, and and you could, you know, you could see him, and you could see the disappointment growing on his face, and that was that was just hard for those of us who knew him. And then he stood up, and you know, the last pick of the first round, he stood up and he started walking out, and we're like, what is this guy doing? But he came in, he came to New York. Uh, where is he going? And it kind of fit in with, um, like I said, the chip on the shoulder, the the attitude that he had. I mean, it's funny looking back, all the pictures that people ran, he it seemed like he always had a smile on his face, but it didn't really feel like that when he was here. He played with a scowl. He, he was intimidating even in practice. I wrote about, you know, here was Phil, was his, was his basketball brother, and they had met at an AAU tournament when they were both in high school and traded each other's phone number and, and, and Howie Dickham and tapped Phil on the shoulder and said, that's Cliff Robinson. He posted to the, he, he, you know, he pointed to the big guy with a, a boombox and talk about, <laughs> talk about aging yourself. He had a boombox with him and it was carrying it on the shoulder. And, um, you know, that's how they met and everything. And, and just to, to be in that whole atmosphere when we have a lot more access than you ever saw around UConn, or, or uh, it certainly goes on now. Everything's pretty controlled and pretty shielded, and we talk to guys in groups now after a game, and we had locker room access after practice, and we we had the ability, uh, Phil Chartis, who's... Uh, Basketball sports information director now, Peter Abraham, who works for the Boston Globe. The three of us would be there almost every day at practice, and we were we were sitting on the bench, uh, sitting on the scorer's table at the old field house, watching practice, and could hear everything, see everything. And I wasn't there for the time that Phil and Cliff got into a fight in practice, but uh, then Greg Greg Economo also wrote on his Facebook post the other day that they got into a fight. I, I don't remember that, but Cliff would Cliff was throwing elbows like crazy in practice, and uh, you know things happen. You know you're in, you're competing for uh, playing time, and and you're out there playing and proving yourself, and each guy feels the same way. And there were, so there were a few fights in practice, and so Cliff had that sort of angry disposition, and and so when he got up and left. Uh, I, I think I remember Tim Tolkien being there and, and just uh, the SID then and kind of kind of reining him back so we could talk to him, but we kind of literally ran down the hallway to to catch up with him, and that's that's when he said, uh, you know, he was disappointed. He goes, but it's no big deal. Well, we all, we all knew it was a big deal to him. And he goes, this is what I'd worked hard for, and, you know, I'm just going to wait for my opportunity and prove them wrong. And he and he goes. When I do prove him wrong, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask, how do you like me now? Well, that <laughs> you know, a lot of guys say that Cliff produced and and was you know, was a 
got that revenge back, played, I think, five different teams, and they all, you know, you just look at the reaction Saturday, all the teams that posted uh, uh, condolences on, on Twitter and NBA, and then they had the moment of silence, and the, what I loved the most was the Trailblazers. Uh, they lost Saturday, but they, they all wore black headbands to honor Cliff, and, you know, that, that's pretty cool when you think about how long it's been, and um, the fact that they even remember him now, because so many guys get forgotten, even even guys, you know, in, into the league today don't really know what Michael Jordan went through and everything, and so to, to have them remember that, I thought that was extraordinarily cool that the Trailblazers did that, and uh, it's just been a rough... Uh, rough few days here for college basketball. We've lost Lute Olson, we've lost Cliff, and uh, and then uh, John Thompson now. I feel like uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that was the glory time of the Big East when uh, Jim came in, always talking about how he was received by Lou Carnesecca, Roley Massimino, John Thompson, at, at that uh, Jim Beheim at that first... Uh, Jim was hired in May, and the Big East meetings were immediately after that. He almost went directly from the press conference and stores to the Big East meetings and and how the uh, these great Hall of Fame coaches em- embraced him. And, of course, Thompson won, won it all in 84 and then lost in 85 to Villanova with the three Big East teams in there. It was just, you know, it was the glory days of the Big East right there that everything was starting and, and, uh, you know, Cliff, Cliff was in there as, as, as part of all that right after that and leading up to Seton Hall going to the final four and UConn going and, and going to a regional final in 90 and all that. It's just, uh, it was an amazing time and I'm considering myself very lucky to have been around all those people that made the Big East a great conference. Oh, absolutely. Now, so, you know, obviously, like like you said, Cliff went on to, the you know, enjoy a really, really fine NBA career. And, you know, if you think, you think of all the great NBA players who have come out of UConn since Cliff, and it's um, it's pretty remarkable how high you know, Cliff stacks up against everybody else. You, you look at, you know, obviously he was, he's about as... In terms of longevity, he pretty much has everybody else beat. But even you know, he was always productive throughout his career, and uh, you know his rankings on the UConn leaderboard are pretty much reflect that. He is the um, second in NBA history among all UConn players in total points. He had nineteen thousand five hundred ninety-one. That's second only to Ray Allen. You know, first in games played, he had played thirteen hundred eighty games. Second in minutes played, forty-two thousand five hundred sixty-one. Third in rebounds, six uh, six thousand three hundred and six. First in blocks, uh, one thousand three hundred and ninety. You know, it's like you said, he he did he he did a lot. You know, he he was productive on both sides of the court. Um, you know, he was the NBA Sixth Man of the Year in the nineteen ninety three season, an NBA All Star in ninety four. I'm actually surprised he was only an All Star once, to be honest. I I thought he would have been a couple more times, but even still, all all second team uh, defense, two thousand two thousand two. You know, we're getting kind of late in his career, and he's still an elite defensive player. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he helped lead the Blazers to the NBA Finals twice in uh, 1990 and 92. Um, you know, a really outstanding career. You know, he played until 2007, so 18 full years. I mean, 
I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, I remember when I was in high school, there was a handful of guys who I just remember, oh yeah, these guys have been in the NBA for as long as I can remember. And by, you know, by the time you get to, you know, you know, 2007, I was 17 years old. So, you know, there aren't very many guys left. And like, I think Cliff and Shaq were like the last two I remember being like, I literally can't remember the NBA without these the two guys. So that was kind of, you know, kind of something cool to kind of think of about, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about, I guess we'll say the, the bad memories for Cliff at UConn, but he had some great moments too. Um, do you have a favorite Cliff Robinson memory of something, you know, really awesome or, you know, a really good game or something really funny he did that stands out to you all, all these years later? separate identities they were 
two guys rolled into one all the time. Um, and, and you really, you don't, even with the great UConn teams, you don't really get that that much. I mean, Ray was Ray, Rip was Rip. Um, Khaled was Khaled. Every, everything you went through, you, you certainly, you know, you didn't say, well, Khaled and Kevin Freeman. <laughs> that, that, that didn't happen. Or, or Kevin and Jake Vosco. Nobody was linked together the way Cliff and Phil were. And in fact, in that story that I did, I, I led with the fact that, uh, you know, Phil was the MVP of the NIT and, and uh, Cliff was the preseason first team all-conference selection. So we go down to New York City for a Big East media day before the season and Sean Miller, who's now the head coach at Arizona, was, was there from Pittsburgh. And he looked at Cliff and said, how you doing, Phil? <laughs> and Cliff gave him this puzzled look, but that happened quite a few times. And Bobby Martin from uh, from Pittsburgh was there too, and and, and Cliff and, and Bobby Martin looked at each other and, and just kind of laughed. And, and, but that was just like a normal occurrence that they were so interchangeable that the people even called them by the wrong name, which you, you wouldn't even think of right now i mean that's uh, absurd they're they're not even they don't look anything alike <laughs> they're like no. cliff yeah, is significantly taller than phil <laughs> played different positions had different games uh and yet people because uconn was so fresh really uh and even though they played against each other you know sean miller i i hope he does better in recruiting than he did with that moment he doesn't ever get somebody confused with somebody else but uh it, it was it was a cool thing to see those two guys go through that. And Phil's really struggling with this. Uh, you know, he, he told me, he was, uh, he's my, he was my basketball brother. And um, uh, it's, that makes it really hard. And, uh, and then, especially when you look back at that team, that uh, three of those guys have passed away with Jeff King, Spider Ursary, and now Cliff. It boggles your mind. I mean, uh, I feel old when I see the guys come back anyway, but uh, I, I just, Dick Vitale was just on ESPN talking about uh, you know, he's in his 80s. John Thompson just passed away at 78. And, you know, I just heard Dick Vitale and Jim Beheim both, both you know, crying on ESPN about the loss of John Thompson. And it, it, it hits you when you're uh, – I guess of this age where you can, and especially this year with so much going on with the virus and uh, we're just kind of closed up and then we, we lose these people. I hope that, uh, I hope that both Cliff and, and John Thompson can have uh, the, their proper, you know, services, uh, especially I know with, with John, uh, I know what it was like when, when Dave Gavitt passed away, it was such a, a huge gathering at his funeral and everybody that was associated with the Big East. And, and I hope that, that John, certainly at this time, you think about John Thompson III, his son, who went into coaching at Georgetown. What a difficult situation. You think about Patrick Ewing and Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, all these, uh, Alan Iris and all these people who, uh, made Georgetown great, made, made Georgetown hated, but uh, I had a lot of respect for John Thompson, too, and uh, 
whenever I heard John Thompson talk, I, I learned something, and uh, I was honored to. Uh, when when John went into the Hall of Fame, I, I was asked to write his uh, biography in the uh, Hall of Fame program, and John and I had a good relationship. I, I for some reason John really liked the the uh, Hartford Current. I think it was Owen Canfield that ingratiated him to the Hartford Current, and and I was the beneficiary of that. And uh, there was a you know there was I, I'm I'm digressing and getting away from Cliff here. It's all good. This is good stuff. Tell all, me about it. <laughs> It's all just so linked to the, the same era. And uh, John was a remarkable man with a lot of wisdom. And, um, and it, it, after, you know, he left his coaching, he was a broadcaster, and would, I would bump into him in the press room. And uh, he always had a handshake or a hug or put his arm around me or something. It was, it was pretty special. And, um, you know, I would say I was just a close friend, but I would just say that uh, – um, people knock the Hoya paranoia times and, and, and Cliff in some ways was, was that defiant black guy too, sort of like John, but they didn't care. Like I said, Cliff, Cliff told me in his senior, he didn't care if he talked to people, he didn't care what they thought of him. And, and John Thompson was much the same. He was making a statement in, in so many different ways. And, uh, uh a true, true father figure as a coach, uh, John Thompson with all of his guys. And I, I, I respected him very much. So, uh, this is, this is tough to see. It starts to think, you know, Vital was talking about, you know, him being in his eighties and it's scary. And you, you do start to, I'm not quite that old, but, uh, you do start thinking about your own mortality a little bit when the, these people that you spent so many years with, uh, start passing away yeah absolutely so let's uh you know we've talked awfully an awful lot about cliff kind of in the big picture obviously in this show we, we usually like to kind of focus in on certain games and uh you know for cliff he had you know he had some great games and uh but th- there's one in particular that we were going to talk about where you know I, I feel like maybe statistically it might not have been cliff's best game but it was certainly maybe his most impactful, at least you know at that at that point in time for sure. Uh, so um, in 1988, uh, in January, I believe January 16th, UConn goes to the Carrier Dome and plays number ninth ranked Syracuse. Uh, Syracuse never lost in the Carrier Dome. It just like they they pretty much. I think they were even saying during the broadcast that they only lost like maybe 20 times ever since the building had been built at that point. So. You know, for UConn to go into the Carrier Dome, you kind of just assumed it was going to be a loss. And, you know, they go in and they win. And not only do they win, but, you know, they, they erase a big deficit in the last couple of minutes. And literally in the final, like, seconds, uh, Cliff draws a foul, goes to the line like all by himself. It was an intentional foul call, so nobody's even, like, on the key. It's literally just him in the middle of a, a huge arena with thousands of people. And he, he, he actually misses the first three throw, too, which was a little bit scary and then knocks down the second and, you know, UConn wins the, you know, 51 to 50, uh, you know, a remarkable win really just like, I can't even, you know, it's hard to even put in the context of how big a deal this must've been. What was it like, you know, for you to, well, first of all, you know, to, what was it like, I guess, just for UConn to, to experience this kind of a win, you know, and what did it do for the program at that point in time? Well, it was, uh, it was a landmark night really. And, uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I worked in uh, Binghamton, New York, um, 
prior to coming to Hartford, and that, then I worked in Baltimore uh, right before I came to Hartford, and uh, I did a lot of Syracuse games. The Carrier Dome opened in 80, 81, and I moved to Binghamton in, in, in 81, and that was uh, the Leo Routens, Eric Sanifer, uh, Tony Bruin era of, of uh, Syracuse, and Bayham was relatively young at that point, <laughs> and um, the, the Carrier Dome, well, I also covered, I covered Pearl Washington, and uh, it was just an, it was an amazing time, and Syracuse and Georgetown obviously became the great rivalry in the Big East at that time with Bayham and Thompson, but um, that was Jim's, that was Calhoun's first win against Syracuse. Um, obviously, it didn't take that long, but that was only UConn's third win in the Carrier Dome. And uh, even though UConn was up and coming, uh, you didn't get the sense. In fact, you sent me the, the YouTube video, and, and it was funny because Joe D'Ambrosio and D. Rowe were, were calling the game for the Big East Network. And, you know, Syracuse had just lost to Villanova earlier, I think a big Monday game, and, and this was a Saturday game. And, and D. Rowe said, I'm, D. Rowe in his pregame talk, he said, I'm not sure this is a good time for the Huskies to be coming in here. And I think Syracuse was preseason number one that year. Um, they had been at the Final Four in 87. And so, no, you, you didn't expect, even with Cliff and Phil and Tate George on the team, you did not expect them because, I mean, look at that Syracuse team. Derek Coleman, Sherman Douglas, uh, Matt Rowe, um, uh, Stevie, uh, Stevie Thompson, uh, <laughs> Ronnie Cycli, and, and, and Cliff and Ronnie were going at it early, and Ronnie got into foul trouble. Ronnie, Ronnie didn't have really great games against uh, UConn, and and so Ronnie got his third foul in the first half and, and was out of there for a long time. And, you know, I'm sure as you watch the game, you see Cliff as a big factor in this game, but Ronnie not. And um, I think, as, you know, I been a, it had been a long time since I'd looked at the highlights. I kind of skipped through the, the some of the segments, but uh, for you kind of come back like that and then, Half Sherman Douglas called for an intentional foul as the clock is running out. Uh, I was surprised that oranges weren't being thrown onto the floor. From uh, it was almost thirty thousand people in the dome that day, and as D. Rowe said in his pregame, he said uh, thirty thousand people at eleven dollars a pop that'll that'll buy a lot of groceries. <laughs> and uh, it was always impressive to see you know a huge crowd like that. But, um, wow, I mean, uh, an intentional foul with, with two seconds left against Sherman Douglas, one of the greatest players in Big East history. And, um, you know, yeah, I, even as I look at it, I'm not sure it was an intentional foul. I mean, it was it was pretty rough because Sherman was surprised that, that the ball went into Cliff in that situation because Phil Gamble had just hit two three-pointers to, to tie the game. So... And just, ima just imagine stepping to the line 
with two free throws and, and nobody at the line. Now, Cliff said that it wasn't any different, but it obviously was. And he clanged the first one off the back of the rim and then calmly, you know, swished the, uh, the, the next free throw. That put him up 51 to 50, and there were only two seconds left. And, and you know, with the intentional foul, you had the ball, so you inbounded, and the game was over. Um, I, I'm surprised there was. I mean, if that, just think if that happened today. Um, let's say uh, Tulane, <laughs> Tulane, or somebody from the American that's at the bottom of the heap, East Carolina going going in and uh, up, upsetting a, a top ten team and on a call like that. Why don't Why don't we say like DePaul doing it to like UConn or Villanova? I don't think we want to really worry <laughs> too much ourselves with Tulane anymore because that's inconceivable. Okay. <laughs> that's a good it's yeah that would have been that, that that was just that was crazy you know you know, seeing the yeah the ending of the game was wild because like this is a game that I, I knew only by reputation it's like UConn wins they beat they go on the road they beat Syracuse and they win by one well it must have been awesome then you actually watch it you're like oh my god like what happened like Cliff, like you know Cliff is just like on an island here after after that call it was nuts and you know, also just like to, as a testament to just Cliff's impact, he was getting like double and triple teamed the whole game. You know, like he gets blocked by Derek Coleman a whole bunch of times. I, I don't. They said at one point that Coleman had like six blocks in the first half alone, and like obviously those weren't yeah. all, those weren't all against you know Cliff, but a few of them were. And like, you know, it's I think like I said I think before you know Cliff finishes with eleven points and ten rebounds, so not like a super like crazy like you know statistically impressive game but then again you also look at just what ha- what's happening like you know he's got uh, like at least two men draped over him the whole game and he still was able to kind of make an impact and you know just do his thing um you know first half too I, one thing i noticed which was kind of funny so the last episode i did it with uh with chris smith and we did the um yukon syracuse biggies championship in 1990 and the very the beginning of the game plays out almost exactly the same you know syracuse starts on an eight to nothing run you know, UConn's kind of just getting dunked on every play, and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't looking good. Um, do you recall, I guess, thinking at any point, like, if UConn was really in trouble, or even at this point, did you have an inkling that they were, well, at the very least, going to be competitive, if not, you know, not totally get run off the court? Well, I, I didn't think they were going to get run off the court, but that 8 to nothing start was, was impressive, and Syracuse was playing exactly the way they wanted to play. I mean, they play were playing up tempo, uh, fast breaking. I mean, look at some of those um, lot like long full court outlet passes. Derek would grab a, a rebound and, and throw it all the way to the other end of the court, and Sherman was already there for, for a layup. Um, it, it, it started out exactly the way Jim Beheim and Syracuse wanted it to, and, and if UConn had stayed that way the whole time they wouldn't have kept up. It would have been a blowout. I, so at that point, I, it's a long time ago, but I, I don't know what I was thinking exactly. But even as you watch it now, you say, well, UConn's not going to have a chance in this game because you're talking about a bunch of NBA all-time great all-big East players who were just uh, kind of scoring a will. Um, and, and, and Phil came in and hit a three that, that – Give you kind of first points, and it kind of settled them down, and then, and then Calhoun worked his defense to uh, in, his, in his own masterful way, and, and 
really slowed the game down because it ends up 51 to 50. I mean, Syracuse came into that game averaging like 95 points. Uh, they were one of the top scoring teams in the country. And, and again, in comparison, you know, just imagine the way the way college basketball is played right now. If a team was scoring 95 points a game and, and, and you had really something truly special and it was a very good Syracuse team. You kind of played a, a game against Pittsburgh uh, earlier that week. I said, you know, Syracuse had lost to Villanova, so they were they were dangerous. And the other thing was that uh, you kind of played Pitt well, uh, but they lost. And and but at that point in time, a, a close loss to a, a good team like Pittsburgh at that point was a uh, was a feather in the cap for for UConn. And uh, Calhoun told us after the game that he had had a team meeting in the hotel before the game and said, you know, if 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 you're thinking you did something great against Pittsburgh, just forget it. <laughs> that that is not going to help you today. Um, and so they went in there fighting, and then they, they, you know, they never led until that until the final score, 51-50. But it seemed like they were always trying to come back. And like I said, Phil hit those two three-pointers uh, that are kind of lost in the shuffle because Cliff hit the free throw. But, you know, that uh, very few games that I can tell you the, the final score, some, some final four national championship games and stuff, but um, as soon as you mentioned that to me the other day, I said, oh, that's the 51-50 to 50 game. It just jumped right into my head, and, and you look at the um, you look at the video or even some of the pictures that were in our editions, and, and, and you had, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Greg Economo was, was, was still on the team, but you, <laughs> I, I, had, I had to laugh in the the picture we have of the celebration, Lyman DePriest is jumping up and down, and everybody remembers Lyman, but there was Clint Simmons and Karsten Kibbe were on the bench still in their warm-ups because they didn't play in the game. And now I'm not knocking Clint and Car- Karsten. They were great guys, but, I mean, these are not big names in Big East history. And uh, Karsten, uh, you know, God bless him, he, he was he was not an all-Big East in any any terms, and um, to, to to think what they had there, but they did have, um, and 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 here again, I hate to keep coming back to this uh, theme of people passing away, but to have to see Jeff King and Spider Ursery and Cliff on the floor at the end there together, uh, three fifths of the, that team is is passed away, and it it just kind of blew my mind to see that. I mean, Spider. Spider came in and made his contribution too. He hit some free throws, and uh, you know he wasn't a guy who was going to go off big. And, and Jeff Jeff King came off the bench and uh, and and hit a little hook shot. And it kind of you talked about all the attention given to Cliff. I mean Jeff scoring inside um, kind of broke that up a little bit. And then Jim Jim went to his two three, and then he did a little one two two. Um, kept throwing different things at, at Syracuse. And they, they, like I said, I mean, this was a great Syracuse team. They would have kept up in a man-to-man situation running up and down the floor. And, you know, looking at my game story, that was that was the Syracuse's lowest point total. Like I said, they carried almost 80-81. So we're talking 88. 
and that was their lowest point total they had had in the Carrier Dome. And the last time they'd been held to 50 in a Syracuse building, coming back to John Thompson again, was Georgetown closed out uh, Manly Fieldhouse with uh, the win, the, the now famous, always famous win of beating Syracuse in their last game at Manly. And, and John Thompson walked in their room and said, Manly Fieldhouse is officially closed. <laughs> and, uh, they had scored 50 in that game and that so you know you always equate uh, Syracuse with a couple things that they could they could run they could score and and then their um their zone defense but uh, Jim Jim was able to swing the pace back in, in UConn's favor by going to zone and 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 that made a big difference. Yeah, definitely. Now this, yeah, the defense in this game was phenomenal. And just, uh, you know, I think it's, it probably doesn't, we probably don't need to go like play by play by any stretch, but you know, after UConn, you know, falls way behind, they, you know, they, they pull back, not, you know, to within two possessions or so they go into halftime trailing 25, 22. And then in the second half, I'm like watching the game, like, okay, what's it going to happen? Cause UConn falls back down by nine by the under 16 timeout. And then it just kind of stays that way for a while. Like I'm looking at the math, like I know what the final score is. So I'm like, okay, there's a point where UConn goes on a run. When's it going to come? 11 minutes, Cuse is still up by nine. You know, eight minutes, Cuse is still up by nine. You know, and then, you know, I think eventually, yeah, then Syracuse actually still leads by eight, 48-40 with five minutes left. And now I'm thinking, Syracuse is only going to score two more points. Like, <laughs> what's what's going on? So they, I think they they finally do eventually score their last basket with about two and a half minutes left, and then yeah, then UConn ends the game on a seven nothing run with uh you know Phil Gamble you know you mentioned a couple times back to back three pointers, the the sound that the Syracuse fans make after the second free uh, the second three rather was awesome because it's just like that beautiful mixture of shock like. Uh oh, and there's no way this is happening. Like you, you know, like you, you watch this big comeback in a road environment, and the crowd starts getting really antsy. Where they're like, "I can't really believe that what's happening is happening, and this shouldn't happen, and we're the better team, and we should win." And yet, I'm no longer confident we're gonna win. And Syracuse's crowd was giving off serious like "uh oh" vibes after that. So, you know, and then obviously, you know, you know, Cliff gets the the big moment at the end. This, yeah, this game. I got to say, this game is a fantastic rewatch and not just because of the game. Like, you know, Joe D'Ambrosio with like the hair and mustache and just like his whole <laughs> 80s vibe was awesome. There's a pregame segment where he's interviewing Steve Peichel, who's like literally a baby. Like, I think, you know, of course, he's the, you know, the head coach at Rutgers now. He's like this big, he's enjoyed this terrific career. And it's like, oh, that's like, like, like an 18 year old kid, <laughs> which is really kind of funny, you know, and yeah, then. sent me that video and uh i appreciate that because i didn't have to go searching for it but uh it was calhoun's corner that was that was the name of the uh show that tim falcon and chuck steedman at uconn produced uh as a coaching show for jim because he was jim was totally in the mode of of promoting the uh program you know and and that's why he had really open practices and got to know got to know us as reporters and uh, and Joe Joe D was working at WPOP radio and, and uh, became the host of Coach's Corner and then he was you know he was doing 
Big East games on the Big East Network, and and yeah, you know, it, it definitely Joe Joe looks much better as a bald man than he. <laughs> I gotta be honest, I didn't recognize him until he started talking, and I was just like, wait a second, is that, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I, I jumped, I, I advanced the thing into the game, and I immediately knew it was Joe and Dee just from their voices. I had not watched the, the pregame stuff, then I went back, and just to make sure that was Dee, and, uh, you know, Dee was impeccably dressed with his pocket square and, and all his little, uh, things that the D always has has had still has and uh it, it was it was it was kind of mind-blowing to see joe and d together but uh, the coach's corner show and i remember tim pelican was uh was so proud one night i think it was at the, the old annual southington scrimmage that they used to have and uh and tim came up to me and said oh, i found this this great theme song and it was you can't sit down you can't sit down <laughs> And he just thought that was the greatest uh, thing to introduce uh, UConn basketball. It was pretty funny, and uh, uh, so they had the yeah, they had this, the coach's corner with Steve Peichel on there. And then if you watched that all the way through to the end, there was uh, a mailbag segment where somebody wrote in and asked about what it's like to have all the media attention. And, and Calhoun, you know, graciously gave his well, it's good and it's bad. It teaches our kids to be interviewed, and they're gonna through this is going to help him in life later and and steve was was sitting there like a uh like he was petrified it looked like i i don't think he said a whole lot but uh you know um it, those are great guys from that team that uh that helped build everything but uh you know we don't those things don't happen the, the coaches shows aren't really uh happening these days and no, uh, certainly not to that degree no yeah, it's streaming online with uh, you know Gino and Dan talking about the the pandemic, but uh, so it, it was it was it was a different time. It was it was it was funny to see that. I'll have to next time I talk to Joe, I'll have to kid him about that, but I'm sure he remembers it well. Oh, for sure. No, so if anybody wants to see, so by the way, if anybody's wondering where we all find these replays, uh, there's a great great website, UConnHuskyGames.com, and uh, they have replays of God. I mean pretty much every game you can imagine. I mean, some of the, you know, really early ones, like from the 1988 season, there's only a handful that are available and they're kind of the noteworthy ones, but there's some really, there's some really great like time capsules in there. So I highly recommend anybody who is interested, you know, go check that website out. We we've used them to replay all the games we've talked about so far. Um, couple other great notes, notes from this game broadcast. Um, at the beginning of the game, uh, Joe notes that, UConn's tradition where fans stand until the home team scores. Uh, apparently, that was borrowed from Syracuse. I guess I, I didn't realize that, but that was a, a carrier dub thing that uh, Joe says was, you know, adopted. So that's a thing. And then well, um, they did. So they did that in Syracuse before the carrier dome because um, my wife grew up in the Syracuse area. We met at the University of Kansas, and uh, one Christmas vacation, I went back home with her and. We went to a game at Manly Fieldhouse uh, with my mother-in-law and father-in-law, and my father-in-law could not stand that he did. He he had paid for his seat. He wanted to be sitting down. He didn't want people standing up in front of him blocking. And I remember how angry he was <laughs> being at Manly Fieldhouse. Uh, I can't even remember who Syracuse played that night, 
but it, uh, it, it was there before the Carrier Dome, and uh, my, it did not make my father-in-law happy. He was a Syracuse fan, and he didn't want to stand up until the home team scored. You know, sounds like your father-in-law would have gotten along great with UConn student section, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, one other note. Um, so at halftime, Joe was talking to the, uh, at that point, UConn's athletic director, uh, Todd Turner, I believe was his name. And, you know, they're talking about the Carrier Dome. And at one point, they start discussing the upcoming construction of UConn's own on-campus arena that we would all know and, well, know and love as Gamble Pavilion. That was kind of cool. Just like, yeah, like UConn at that time was playing their biggest games in the Civic Center slash the XL Center slash whatever you call it, whatever it was called, you know, at, at whatever point in time. And um, otherwise, they were in the field house. And, you know, we, when we, 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 on, um, we, I did an episode, I think it might've been with Dom uh, Amore about the uh, NIT championship. And uh, we talked about how they played that uh, quarterfinal game against VCU in the field house. And it was just the most like bizarre atmosphere just cause like the dust was literally being shaken from the ceiling. It's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. Just like playing games in a field house. So that was kind of a cool little thing to kind of see. I remember pop that up. very well. I mean, it was, it was the hottest night I ever experienced in the uh, field house and it was just you know it was March but it was unseasonably warm and uh, yeah the dust was coming off and uh, one of those one of those memories of the NIT run without a doubt I mean going to West Virginia I mean eight, 1988 was uh, an incredible March because um, you know UConn made the NIT they got sent to West Virginia we went down that covered that and then they came home and had two games in the field house or maybe I think it was actually one game in the Civic Center and one game in the field house they couldn't they couldn't play the other game in the, in the field house I believe because of the NCAA first and second round that you mentioned Todd Turner and they were Joe and Todd were talking about uh, you know them being excited about the, the regional coming back to the Civic Center that year so we had UConn playing in the NIT um and we had the NCAA tournament in Hartford. Then we go to New York for the NIT championship. Uh, I remember as I went to school at Kansas, I remember Phil Chartis and I driving back from a NIT press conference, I, th- I think on it was on Sunday. Um, and I was listening on the radio to, to Kansas, Kansas beating Kansas State in an elite eight game to go to the final four, which was in my hometown of Kansas city <laughs> in 1988. So UConn wins the NIT. Tim Tolkien and I got up early. I, I, I was writing all night about UConn winning the NIT. I don't think I went to bed for any more than about an hour. This guy, a short nap, Tim Tolkien and I got up early on the next morning to, to go to Kansas city. Cause Tim used to work on the NCAA media committee uh, I was heading home to see my Jayhawks win a national championship oh my uh, gosh that's big- right <laughs> in the course of all that during the Big East tournament my second son was born on March 10th so it was one crazy month for me uh, really busy so I had you know my wife gave birth and I said goodbye and <laughs> <laughs> then New York City back home working my brains out and uh and then going to kansas city it, it was uh it was quite a year for a a young 
young basketball writer for the team that he covered and the team that he went the, that he went to school at. So remember it very well, the VCU game in that, and uh, crazy. Man, crazy. wow, well, that is something else. Well, well, good stuff. Well, that sounds like a good place to probably wrap this up. So, you know, obviously, you know, Cliff Robinson, you know, we – you know, discussed at length, you know, just an, an incredible player who's left behind quite a legacy. So I guess before we call it a day, I guess any last thoughts on Cliff and just, you know, his impact on, you know, the world of basketball? Well, I just think uh, we watched uh, we watched the guy grow up here. And uh, like I said, he, he opened up a little bit more towards the, uh, the end of his senior year. And the, the, the story I did on Cliff and Phil is still one of my favorite stories that I ever did in my career. And, uh, you know, a lot of things came out of both of them and how they felt about the way the campus reacted to them when they, when they uh, had the academic failings. And, and I, I, you know, I, I wish UConn fans could, uh, even if they weren't alive during that, I wish they could understand the importance that those two guys played in not only in basketball, but, but just setting the, the right tone for everything that had to happen for UConn to move on. And uh, it was a big burden on Jim. It was hard work for those two guys, and they got it straightened out. And and the rest is history, as they say. But, um, you know, Cliff, Cliff turned out to be a guy that would come back and be at Calhoun Charity Games, and, and he would have that big smile. I mean, like I said, you see all these pictures of him smiling, and and for those of us who knew him as a freshman, when he he wasn't smiling very much, uh, I don't know that that kind of caught me off guard. It seemed like every picture, except for that one where Jordan gave him the shrug after hitting that shot, and he well, actually, he didn't give it the shrug to Cliff. He gave it to Magic Johnson on the sideline and the in the broadcast crew. But uh, and he, Cliff wasn't smiling then. But um, most of the time, he he was uh, you know and. From what you hear from all the NBA guys, he was a great teammate, and uh, you know UConn should continue to be proud of Cliff Robinson. There's obviously been Danielle and Ray and Rip and all the other great players uh, with Shabazz and everything that, that won championships, but uh, but Cliff was there when it was all starting, and, and people should should not forget that. I hope uh, I know get a sense from it from social media for people reacting but i know it was a long time ago but uh he's a key puts a really key figure in in uconn history and it should be remembered that way absolutely well well ken thanks again so much for coming on i uh, always loved having you and um yeah everybody else thanks so much for listening um we'll be back again next week um you guys know the drill uh follow me on twitter at max cerullo m-a-c-c-e-r-u-l-l-o uh twitter dms are open and uh you know email is yes podcast at gmail.com um you know five star reviews are good help us uh, get higher up on apple uh, podcasts and uh yeah that's about it so anyway we'll uh, catch you all next week and uh, you guys all have a good one